listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome to the Joseph Campbell Foundation Podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. If you'll recall, last month we listened to a lecture called Mystical Experience in the Hero's Journey. Today we're listening to the second lecture in that series called The Quest for the Grail. This lecture series was presented at Esalen Institute in 1967. As you know, Campbell began going to Esalen in 1965 and returned in March each year to celebrate his birthday and give a series of lectures in Big Sur, a place that he described as paradise on the Pacific coast. Last month in my introduction, I made some comments exploring how to understand what is meant and what Professor Campbell means by the use of the word mysticism. You can always refer back to that introduction if you'd like to be refreshed on that topic. For this lecture, I'd like to say a few things about the Grail legends in particular. The phrase, the Holy Grail, reminds me that while there are certainly recognizably Christian elements to these romances, for instance, the spear that pierced Christ's side as he hung upon the cross, the cup that caught Christ's blood, and a piece of the true cross borne ceremoniously on a silver platter, and so on. Joseph Campbell understood the Arthurian romances to be constituting a secular mythology. By secular mythology, he meant that these narratives and images were intended to be understood symbolically and metaphorically. As Lansing Evans Smith noted in his editor's foreword to the Joseph Campbell Foundation's publication of Romance of the Grail, The Magic and Mystery of Arthurian Myth, the Arthurian myths represent the world's first secular mythology, by which Campbell meant that the myths were not to be taken literally, but to be interpreted as metaphors of the natural stages of spiritual growth and development, symbols of the stages of the individuation process, one might say, unquote. The Arthurian romances, to which the Grail legends belong, are part of a larger collection of the medieval literature and lore of Great Britain and the Brittany region of northwest France. This larger collection is called The Matter of Britain. In addition to The Matter of Britain, there are also The Matter of France, which deals with the exploits of Charlemagne and his paladins, and The Matter of Rome, which deals with the material of classical mythology. These three matters mattered most from the 12th through the 16th century. The 12th century poet Jean Baudel wrote in his Chanson des Saints that there are but three literary cycles that no one should be without, the matter of France, of Britain, and of great Rome. One may begin to sense that what we now call the study of mythology was, for a period of time, a master discipline that subsumed within it disciplines such as literature, languages, and history. I'd venture to say that nearly everyone has heard of the Grail. And why not? These are fascinating, delightful stories about quests for the Grail, stories which live in the modern imagination 
and have become synonymous with any greatly desired sought-after idea or aspiration. They have rightfully taken their place among the greatest epics of any literary tradition. But how do we understand the Grail? There are so many versions of the Grail legends, and it is described in vastly different ways by different authors. Contradiction and confusion are baked into the Grail legends. They operate in this literature much in the same way consciousness itself operates, teaching the reader that what is omitted, what is left out or repressed, always returns to unsettle every settled interpretation, no matter how monolithic it may at first seem. The Grail is certainly a vessel of great power, but it isn't clear in all the Grail legends what exactly it is. For Chrétien de Troyes, who first features it in his Percival Le Comte du Grail, it is a wide, relatively deep bowl containing a single communion wafer, that sustains the crippled king. In Robert Duboron's late 12th century text, Joseph d'Aramathie, a Christian context is introduced into the Grail legend and envisions it as the cup Christ used at the Last Supper, which later caught his blood as he was taken down from the cross. For Wolfram von Eschenbach, the Grail is a translucent green gemstone, the lapis axillus, or philosopher's stone, that was one of the precious stones associated with the rivers of paradise. And additionally, it was the stone, apparently, within which the neutral angels, the ones who didn't take sides during Satan's rebellion, took refuge and later brought to earth. Thomas Mallory, in his 15th century, Le Mort d'Arthur, also gives us to understand the grail as the holy vessel, the cup of Christ endowed with mystical powers of regeneration and spiritual self-realization. There is a great debate regarding who Mallory actually was. We know, because he told his readers as much, that he was a knight prisoner and asked them to pray for his deliverance. One possible Mallory the Mallory who inherited estates of Newbold Revel in Warwickshire, was a rather unremarkable country gentleman until his early middle age when he inexplicably turned to a life of crime. But regardless of what the Grail is or does, it's important to remember what the image of the Grail continues to do to us, how it inspires us, how it understands us, how the Grail and its various narratives work on the collective unconscious of the Western world, how the Grail narratives empower us, and conversely, how they afflict us by focusing attention on our repressed vulnerabilities and suppressed venalities that we would rather not be aware of. By rooting the Grail epic in secular imagination rather than in religious traditions, the narrative is freed from historical and piously literalistic contexts. An imaginal exploration, a meditation on the image of the Grail, allows one to experience how a high-value image tends to influence and even direct one's experience of life, making more apparent the influence of one's own unconscious on the experiences 
that we prefer to attribute to the operation of fate in the lives that we lead, as well as on the culture wherein we do our living. So with that in mind, here's Joseph Campbell. Well, this morning we finished the, the first adventure, that is to say, the adventure of Fosbaugh's um, quest for acceptance <laughs> to the round table. And uh, interlocking with that was the beginning of the second adventure, namely his quest for uh, the Grail. And this second adventure was one that came upon him, that is to say, the call to adventure was the result of his readiness for it, following his achievements. And uh, in his wandering, his quest for his mother, uh, he comes to this uh, lake where the fisher king is fishing. And the aim of this quest was unknown to him. Yet there was an aim, something that would have to be fulfilled before it, it could be realized. The aim, actually, is for him to heal the king by asking a question. And the question is, what ails you? or something of that sort, an expression of his sympathy. Having failed in this, not even knowing what the adventure was, he incurs great disgrace, as one does who fails in his proper adventure, even without knowing it. <coughs> this isn't a question of moral, ethical failure, it's a question of deep spiritual failure and the ruin of the world as a result. Uh, also, the earlier king had failed Unfortas. Now, as I suggested, this Unfortas is in one sense, on one level, uh, an allegorical figure representing the failure of the uh, Christian religion itself to realize its role. It is uh, uh, having assumed the authority of the sacred spiritual vessel and uh, having been unworthy of it, it itself brought about the wasteland of the medieval 12th century, at least the theme by the poets and saints of that time. There's another aspect to the Grail King. Uh, when the question is asked, that king will be healed, but he will lose his position, and the position of Grail King will go to Pazabal, the one who asked the question. <coughs> and you might say the secret problem of the quest is to heal the Grail King to achieve his role without the wound. That is to say, to uh, become the supporter of the spiritual principle, uh, without the wound. There are two points I, before <coughs> going into the rest of our story that I think are uh, interesting to mention at this time. Uh, Wagner, when working on the Tristan, had the realization suddenly that the Tristan wound, the wound from which Tristan died, was the Anfortas wound. And that is why, while working on the Tristan, he commenced work, actually, on his uh, possible. And what is that wound? It is the wound of lust, uh, life thrown off balance by compulsive lust rather than by controlled amor. Only he interpreted the healing of lust in terms of agape, not amor. Now, it's interesting, as you all know, that Varna himself, while working on the Christian, was violently in love with another man's wife, with Cecilia von Wesendorf, in whose arms he hoped he would die. And he identified himself with Tristan, uh, Matilda with Isolde, and her very generous, and I must say noble husband, Otto, uh, with uh, Mark, who actually 
in his works is a noble man and is in the uh, Gottfried also a noble, wonderful man, without, however, uh, the gentle heart of love. In Gottfried's work, the thing about Mark was that he sent for his daughter to be his wife on the urging of his uh, uh, counsel without ever having seen him. He didn't have the eye and the heart, and one woman for him was as another, so he was ineligible to be her, uh, her real consort. Uh, then here we have this, uh, this Wagnerian concept, uh, and it is borne out in Wolfram's work by the nature of Antwortas' womb. Now, with respect to the question, I ran into a most, I've had this uh, whole theme in my mind for a long, long time. Uh, I started work on the, on the Grail uh, over 40 years ago, and that, uh, in the course of my interest in the Oriental material, I've uh, been watching for parallels and so forth. And I ran into a most astonishing <coughs> one some time ago. In the Panchatantra, which is a textbook of uh, animal stories uh, devoted to the art of politics, how to win, there is a, a, a charming story of four Brahmins who had been wealthy and suddenly found themselves mouth poor. And they decided they were going to uh, get rich somehow. So the four of them got together and started off on an expedition to get rich. And they went north, and as they approached the um, Himalayas, they encounter a great yogi whose name was Bhairavananda, which is one of the names of Shiva in his most horrific aspect. And Bhairavananda really means terror bliss. Um, they approach Bhairavananda and uh, tell him their story. And he says, well, I'll tell you how to get rich. I'll give you four fellows four quills, one quill each. And you just walk north up over the Himalayas in the Tibetan uh, direction. And when the quills drop, you will find uh, the wealth proper to you. So the fourth start north, and the first quill drops. Well, they burrow in the soil, and sure enough, it's all copper. And the first chap says, uh, you fellows can share this with me. They say, oh no, we're going on. We have our own quills, and we're going to go forward. So he stays with the copper, fine, and the other three go on. Uh, next, the second quill drops. They dig in the soil, and here is two. You fellows can share this with me. Oh, no, we're, we're going on. The third quill drops, and it's gold. Well, what's going to be beyond this? Uh, the third, fourth fellow says, don't you see? Copper, silver, gold. <laughs> so uh, he goes on. He comes into the land of desert. Nobody there. The land of Rakshasas, or terrible fairies. And uh, he parts with thirst. And... One of these typical desert scenes of, of a man marooned in the desert. Off in the distance, he sees a strange, solitary sight. A man standing there on a table that is slowly turning. This is the world access table. And this man standing on the table has on his head a wheel that is slowly revolving with great cutting edges so that the blood is pouring down his body from this, uh, these wounds. And uh, our friend approaches. And he sees this man there, and he says, what is this? And the, the fool is on his head now. And the other man is released. And uh, he says, well, this is terrible. The other fellow says, thank you very much. The uh, one who now has the wheel, calls in the story now the wheel bearer, uh, says, how long have you been here in this condition? And the other man says, who is king in the world now? And he gets the answer, Rama, never heard of him. When, I, uh, when this wheel came onto my head, 
so-and-so was seen, and this was millenniums ago. How is the wheel going to leave my head? When someone comes with a quill, as you can, and says, uh, what's the matter? Now this figure, in this funny little story, this is a warning in this story against being too greedy, but the uh, original of this is a Buddhist story, and that figure with the wheel is the Bodhisattva, the one who is the boon bearer to the world. And it is precisely the equivalent of the crucified Christ with the crown of thorns. He's in exactly the same role. And so our uh, wounded king is also the wounded Christ. Now Wagner brings this point up in the Grail romance also. You remember the very last line of the opera. Uh, the king has been healed by Parsifal in his second visit. And from aloft come the boys' angelic voices saying, Erlösen den Erlösen, redemption to the Redeemer. The one who redeems the world has to be himself redeemed, because through the world's ignorance, his blood has become, as it were, petrified in either the rock on which somebody's trip was founded. The, the blood must be liquefied and made to flow again in its redeeming force, that is to say, the scent of the uh, crucifixion must be experienced. And so, Parsifal is going to uh, render this wound. Oh, these little preliminaries to indicate the, the uh, couple of the steps hidden behind the, the main king, the fisher king, the one who is fishing for men. Christ crucified as the fisher king. According to Abelard's view, uh, well, you know, it was a great problem for the church. Why did Christ have to die? Uh, what was the sense of his there were two approved views. One was a very early view that you find already in Origin and in some of the very early interpreters, namely this, that the devil, through his uh, deception of Adam and Eve, had gained legal power over their souls. And uh, the only way he could be relieved of that power was by himself being deceived. So God, the Father, made a kind of contact with the devil with intention to deceive him, because the devil had already deceived man, namely to swap Christ's soul for man's soul. If you will release man, I will give you my son. Well, the devil, character of devil and uh, uh, people like that, is that they mistake shadow for substance. And uh, he thought he could uh, make this swap. So God goes fishing for the devil with Christ is the image that is given. Christ on the cross is the bait on the hook. And there's an image that uh, comes from the 12th century in a little work written by a nun called the Garden of Delights. It's a kind of handbook for the nuns teaching children, which shows God the Father fishing. And the fishing lines are the kings of the house of David with Christ at the end on the fish hook, which is namely the cross, and Leviathan, the devil, coming to be caught on this. Well, he was caught all right on the hook, namely the cross, but Christ, since he was uh, deathless, not subject to death, escaped. So the devil escaped. <coughs> this was one uh, notion of this atonement. Christ redeeming us in the sense of a bank loan being redeemed. You see, a debt redeemed. The, uh, the next great crisis in the Christian view of the uh, crucifixion comes with St. Anselm in the 11th century, where he says, no, the, the, nobody owes the devil anything. 
it was God the Father who was owed something because of the offense to him which man was responsible for in disobeying him in the garden. This was a horrendous offense because God is an infinite virtue and so forth, and nobody could pay God uh, the atonement. There was no man who could do it. So out of love <coughs> for man, Christ assumed the role of being man, who was both God and man, therefore eligible to make atonement, and he died voluntarily. Just living a good life wouldn't have been enough to atone. The death was the atonement, but uh, he didn't have to receive any merit for the death, so he passed the merit on to man, and through Christ's merit, and so forth. So you have these two reasons here. Well, Abathod saw both of these pretty ridiculous, and his notion was that Christ came down to win us through love back to God from whom we had been alienated through our rejection of him. And it was simply to prove God's love and to invoke our love that Christ uh, drew us back. So we can compare this to Christ offering himself as faith to man. The fisher for men is what he was. And here is our fisher king in this role. Christ, the Bodhisattva, and of the, however, the name Christ uh, named in the church. Write it on now with our story. We are two heroes now, Gawain and Parthipal, are about to go off on the high adventure of the spirit, not the social adventure. Both are the great knights of the social world. They have achieved. An important point here is of the religious quest, the spiritual quest, not as a compensation for failure in the physical or in the uh, social quest. Uh, for a lot of people, the religious mood is a, uh, is a uh, sort of compensation for failure in the world. Here it is an overplus. One is going past the world's values out of abundance of life, not out of a failure in the ability to live. Uh, I'm going to start out with Gawain's adventure. He is going off to save uh, uh, 400 queens from enchantment. Uh, they're in a castle in death, and this is just the sort of thing that Gawain would be lured by as uh, he starts off. And this is going to involve some pretty serious fighting, and he knows it. So he, he wants to be in shape for all this. Uh, on the way, he uh, sees a great army going past, and he asks one of the young knights in this army, uh, whose army is this? Well, it's the army of a young fellow who was trying to win the girl of his own uh, vassal, a, a, a great old man who had been his tutor throughout life, had a beautiful girl, daughter, whom this young uh, upic prince wanted to marry. She would have nothing of it, and so he is coming with a whole army to overthrow her father and, uh, and take the girl. So there's this war about to develop, and Gawain goes to look on. He's camped outside the castle, watching the armies assemble, and in the castle is this girl herself, and her mother, and her tiny little sister named Obilok, who's a little thing about four or five years old. And her mother says, who is that handsome knight down there who has just arrived? And this saucy girl who wouldn't uh, uh, marry the, the young prince uh, says, that's no knight, that's just a businessman, that's just a merchant. And her mother says, no, no, no merchant is as handsome as that. And furthermore, he has shields and he has weapons. And the, the, the daughter says, well, some merchants put on airs like this, too. And the tiny little girl says, he's my knight. He's not a merchant. He's a beautiful knight, and he's my knight. Well, uh, the father, meanwhile, has gone down to this knight, and he said, uh, won't you give me a lift here? Won't you get into the combat and, and uh, help? Well, says Gawain, I, I would, but 
gosh, I, I'm on the way to a very serious job that I'm committed to already, and I'm saving myself for this. So the father, <laughs> in uh, considerable discouragement, goes back behind into his house and into his castle, and, and goes through this portal. There's his little tiny Obi Lot there, five years old, and he says, what are you doing here, dear? And she says, oh, Daddy, I think you do it for me. And Daddy um, <laughs> says, well, you know, okay, so out goes this little girl with her tiny little girlfriend, these two little tots, and when the gentle ladies night go in, sees these two little ladies enter, she stands up and receives them, and they sit down, and the little thing says, Sir, this is the first time I have ever spoken to a knight alone. And she says, I hope I do not disgrace myself. Uh, she says, my nurse tells me that one's character is evident in one's speech, and I hope you find mine uh, noble. Now she says, I'm going to tell you something. You are I, and I am you. So that when you are fighting out there, it will be I who is fighting, and it will be a great battle. Now you will do this for me, won't you? And he thought, well, after all, Parsifal uh, said, have no trust in God, I trust in women. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, all right, I shall do this. And uh, it will be a great battle. You will fight wonderfully. So she goes trotting back to Mother, and the knight's going to do the job for them. And, and then, of course, uh, she, has to, she said, oh, before she leaves, she says, now I have something very serious I have to do, so you please excuse me. And, uh, the little thing, and off she goes. Well, what she has to do, of course, is to have a little dress made and give him her sleeve so he can wear it on his shield. So the family has a, where it seems to come and rapidly builds this beautiful dress, the most expensive material. Then they cut one sleeve off, and out runs her little uh, lady's maid, this other tiny little top, with Obilot's sleeve, and the knight nails the sleeve to his shield, and he's going to be uh, Obilot's lady in the field. I mean, Obilot's uh, servant knight in the field. Well, to make the very gallant battle story short, he overthrew everybody. He's simply great. So uh, Obilot <laughs> is, is the victor. And among the people he overthrows is the prince who uh, had uh, come to claim Obilot's sister. So he, and when he overthrows him, he says, now you go in and you're a servant of that princess in there, namely Obilot. <laughs> so, um, this is going in one of his most charming uh, adventures. When he goes back to the castle, the little girl is just so excited the family can't separate her from him. She's hanging onto his hand and, and she's so excited and uh, he receives and she says, you now uh, have the privilege of my love. So they say, you kiss her. You can kiss the little girl. So he takes her like a little doll in his arm and gives her the, the kiss. Because when he becomes her servant, that's a very cute moment too. I don't know whether you know how Knights and ladies work this thing out. But in, uh, in the medieval uh, assumption of the position of a vassal, one gets down on one's knees and holds one's hands, and the overlord puts his hands on the outside. And this is, uh, I mean, uh, Joanne before the little girl. She takes him and she designates him a knight. And now he's about to leave. Well, they can't drag her away from him. They finally do get her loose, and he rides off to his next adventure. Well, the next adventure is at the opposite extreme of his career, every lady. Well, you all know the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This is a modification of that adventure. He's riding along, and he sees a great uh, group of knights out uh, hawking. And the king, this is a 
king of Avalon, the king of Ascalon, as it's called in this thing, uh, King Zerzulon, is talking to. And the king is riding along uh, to save a hawk who is being pulled down into the water by some great big duck or something that he's caught to see. And the king, uh, the king's horse stumbles, the king falls into the water. So when Gawain uh, comes up to say, you know, where such and such a castle that I'm looking for, here's the king dripping wet. And he says, well, uh, you go in, here's my castle here. My sister will take care of you. Or I just want to go on with the hawking for a little while, and I'll be in presently. So the knight goes in, and he is greeted by the sister. And she is absolutely surprised. And uh, uh, she says, well, you have been recommended me to me by my brother. Uh, you can kiss me if you like. He looks and sees this uh, mouth that is beautifully described, long, hot, plump, uh, and he says, such kissable lips lead me to accept your invitation. And then there was such a kiss rendered as is not usual for the greeting of strangers. Then there comes this, this wonderful business of him pushing this thing, you see. And uh, she's being very acquiescent. She's saying, well, as you do things, that's the way I like to do things, until up to a certain point. When she says, now look, it, it, you ought to know that you've gone about as far as any lady should permit. <coughs> and uh, the, uh, at this moment, everybody else in the room has left the room. Uh, he, uh, both on extremely delicate about these things, is always very amused. He says, I think he reached up under her mantle, and I think he touched her hip. And at this point, they were just on the point of doing something they should not have done when an old white-haired knight walks in the room and says, What? You're raping my uh, overlord's daughter? And he sets up a war cry, and the people begin coming from the village, walking in, as he says, whenever a war cry goes up, there are usually people to respond to it, and uh, here's this pair, and, and she starts to say, I was having my sword, coming going, where do we go now? And she says, Well, there's this tower, and my, my rooms are up there, and we, we head for that. So he heads to the tower, and he grabs the, the big <coughs> bar, that is to protect, to bar the thing, and he uses this as a club, and he's knocking people down. She runs upstairs to find some kind of weapon, and what she finds is a great, magnificent chess set. So she brings this chess set down, and he uses the chessboard as a shield while he's using his weapon. And she stands behind him, flinging these things at people, and every time she hits, he says, she's real good, every time she hits, down goes one of the people from the town, and uh, he, what about Gawain, meanwhile? Well, he's losing a lot of time turning around, to see her, because he says she had a, a body that was better than any spitted hair you've ever seen, with a <coughs> waist narrower than that of any ant. And every time he saw her, his courage increased to such extent that many more people went down. And uh, it was in the midst of all this that uh, the king came back, and oh well, it was, it was quite a ruckus, but finally, uh, oh, my, meanwhile, she's flinging things. He says, he says, when women get armor rubbed on them, they lose all sense of decorum. She <laughs> <laughs> was flinging these things at the wall, and, and weeping, tossed of tears. Wow. <laughs> it's a grand scene. Well, that's the way. <clears throat> now, uh, having introduced our second hero, I'll go back to our first and then pick up Gawain in his next uh, uh, event. Remember, he's going to a palace with 400 queens. The Ponsfaldhau uh, uh, has renounced God, renounced the world, and he's just wandering. He is determined he's going to find the Grail Castle a second time and redeem himself and the Grail King. And he's wandering in a wood, and there's a very interesting thing here. He's wandering in it for five years, out of touch with the world. 
riding on this, this team. And the adventure develops in, in terms of his readiness for it. That's to say, he's trying to get to the grail castle. He's within a couple of miles of it all the time, but he can't find it. He's going past it all the time. These are things that come into your life when you're ready for them. Uh, it's the woods, you might say, of your own life that uh, this past adventures represent. In the same world that you're living right now, in the same little environment that is yours throughout your life, deeper and deeper initiations become available to you uh, as you are ready for them. Well, <coughs> I'm going to go through all the adventures. He gets into one squabble <coughs> with a Templar, one of the knights of Montalvat, the, the mountain of the Grail. Uh, he's approaching this knight, and uh, the knight rides at him, and uh, Pasifal is an extremely skillful uh, battler, and uh, he overthrows the knight, and the knight, together uh, with uh, Pasifal, fought go over a precipice. So Pasifal loses his horse, but he gets the Grail Knight's horse, and uh, he now is riding on the steed that belongs to the Grail Castle. Furthermore, he's met that woman again who has the dead knight on her knees, and she's now a nun devoted to that dead knight. And she tells him the story of his mother's uh, uh, anguish for him and all this kind of thing. And now comes a charming scene. It is Good Friday, and he doesn't know it. Good Friday is the day of Christ's very crucifixion. This is and as he's riding along, he sees a group of pilgrims coming down the road in the snow, uh, in wearing pilgrim gear and hair shirts and all this. And at the head of it is an old knight, and his wife is with him, and his two daughters, but they brought their little dogs along. And their whole uh, castle uh, company is behind them. In other words, it's a normal sort of everyday uh, person who is for a weekend having a little expedition pretending he's uh, doing a religious job, you know, a little religious holiday. And uh, when he sees this knight on the horse, he stops with indignation, the old man who's a pilgrim now on Good Friday, and he says, how come that you are riding in armor on this day in which the world weeps? And the knight who is a serious pilgrim here uh, says, I don't know what day it is. I don't know what year it is. I think you are in the worship of someone I hate. And the man says, do you mean Jesus Christ not chanting? And uh, the little girls say, <coughs> listen, Daddy, why don't you give the man uh, a little encouragement here? He must be freezing in that armor. And we have lots of food, and we have lots of blankets. And then he has to say, yeah, sure, come on, and uh, we'll um, have a little party. And then I said, nothing of the kind. I, <coughs> well, said the old man, if you hate God, uh, you should go to confession. And down the road, you'll find a hermitage. And the hermit there will hear your confession and give you a solution. He goes down the road, and indeed, there is a hermit there. This is actually the brother of the Grail King, a very important, wonderful figure named Frederick Sense. He actually is not an ordained priest. And this is the whole point of this whole work. None of the people who affect the transformation of Prosper is ordained in the church. He's really out of the church context. This is a hermit. And when Prosper approaches him, the hermit comes out and takes his horse, and he notices that it's the horse from the Grail Castle. He says nothing about it. Pontifal is uh, talking with him, and uh, Pontifal has been moved by this funny little parody of a religious act to think of Christ and God. And it's not against to have a little question on it as to whether he should be, he should not be penitent. So he says to the monk, I'm one who is a sinner. Uh, not a monk, it's a hermit. And the hermit says, tell me of your sins. But he said, before you do so, and before you start complaining about God, he says, let me tell you something about God. 
that God gives love and hate. This is important. If you give him hate, he can give you hate hundredfold. If you give him love, he can give you love hundredfold. And so who are you hurting if you're hate for God? You're acting like a fool. Now this is a totally different version of God from that which his mother had given Parsifal. It is a notion of God as a kind of cosmic counterpart, a responder to one's own heart. The primacy is with the individual human being, not with God. God is simply the responder. He is the echo, the cosmic echo, of one's own state of uh, mind and soul. And then thirdly, tells about the virgin birth of, uh, of uh, Adam and the virgin birth of the second Adam. And he speaks of one as being, uh, bringing man to sin, the other bringing man to redemption. And you should read these old stories in an interesting new way, interpreting them in terms of your own powers and so on. I, I like that. It brings out the, the, uh, the multiple aspects of the myth. Well, at any rate, uh, he then begins to tell about the Grail Castle. And he says, you know, there was a time when a fool arrived there, a heartless man, who uh, did not ask the proper question, and the great disaster had come. And as he's talking, he gets the idea that this young man is looking at is exactly the one who did this. Because it's a wonderful scene where Parsifal is finally induced to say, uh, yes, I'm the one who did that. Uh, at this moment, Parsifal's conversion begins. That is to say, his heart begins moving positively, not only toward God, but toward the world. And he's on the way back. There we leave Parsifal, and we go back to Gawain. Gawain, having had these two adventures, is now riding up the hill. <coughs> I must say, and I'm sure you all know this, that all of the knights and ladies of the Arturno Master are really transformations of Celtic gods. These are Celtic myths that have been turned into uh, legends of human beings. The sense of this being this, that the gods do live in the world, and we are exactly their incarnation. And we play these roles for each other in terms of our mutual readiness. The uh, actual field of the experience of the Arturian masters is the field of the life of that time, as this is the field of the life of this time. And hidden under the armor, as hidden under these garments here, are the divine releases. This is the great Bodhisattva idea of India. Namely, the Avalokitesvara, the Bodhisattva who regards the world in mercy, is incarnate in us all and is operating through us insofar as we are mutually eliminating each other. And we are mutually illuminating each other all the time, whether we know it or not. The influences, the impacts, the experiences that we render are these openings, and some of them great initiations, others just tiny ones. And uh, so these figures in the midst now are uh, Celtic divinities. And one of the great Celtic divinities is Mananamir, the lord of the oceanic abyss. He is the counterpart of Shiva in India, he is the counterpart of Poseidon and, uh, and Neptune in the Mediterranean. And these are the lords who are the initiators into the abyss, and they are the lord consort of the goddess Mother Earth. Well, uh, in Ireland, there is a, uh, a myth of Nanana living in a spinning castle, a whirling castle of glass. And he is a lord of great hospitality, and he has an inexhaustible cauldron in which he feeds people from the pigs of immortal life. These pigs are marvelous. You, you eat their very sweet meat, and next day they're right there to be slaughtered and eaten again. The inexhaustible, ever reproducing uh, bounty, which is that of life in the world itself. So, Volkham uh, has um, of, uh, going, going up the mountain as though the mountain was spinning. He's going round and round and round, and on the way up, he's sitting by a spring. It's huge. 
woman sitting by the spring. This we find in many, many myths. Uh, Jacob's Rachel by the spring. Uh, and so on. And when he sees her, he stops at her. And uh, he says, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And she says, I know that. <laughs> but I don't care to be told this by a fool. And uh, he immediately dedicates himself to her. And she says, you're going to be sorry. And she uh, says, I, I warn you right now that uh, you will be much more agreeable and likable to me if you're much further away. And she speaks of it in a very uh, unsympathetic manner. But he's absolutely fixed now to this adamantine woman. This is the projection of the soul what Jung calls the animal woman. That is his own destiny there before him. Well, she says, if you, you want to serve me, get off that horse of yours and walk down the way there, and you'll see some people cross that little bridge, you'll see some people dancing so far, and you walk right past them, you see a horse uh, tied to a tree, that's my horse, you go bring that here, just follow you. So, Gawain does start down the path, and as he approaches these people, everybody says, God, you're not going to take that horse to that woman, you're in for a terrible time. And uh, he uh, nevertheless goes through with this and brings her to the horse. Well, what she challenges him with is one horrendous adventure after another of uh, terrible combat. But the greatest comes when she brings him to the castle of women, namely the castle of marbles with the 400 queens in there, and it's just across a great moat. Facing the moat comes, oh, I must tell you, he's lost his horse in the course of these adventures, and he's now riding on some kind of uh, nag that has uh, uh, an imperfect saddle, just a, an old broken down thing, lame in two legs and so on. And he on this, and she laughing at him all the while, he sees coming at him a knight, one of the great knights of the world, uh, well dure, last choice. And the queen says to him, uh, uh, the name is, well, so how are you going to handle this? I'm going to watch, and it's going to be very pretty when you fall off that horse and your pants split open and the ladies across the way will have a laugh. Uh, he, he then figures out how he's going to handle this thing, and he decides what he'll do will be simply to run his nag in the way of the oncoming horse and have a rush, have the, the, uh, the big horse fall over the little one, and then he'll fight the man on the ground. And uh, this is just as it works, so you're man to man now, and uh, he's a great wrestler in particular, and when he slashes the sword out of the other and he throws him, and he says, now surrender. The man says, I won't surrender. You've got to kill me. Right, so what should I kill this fellow, you know? So he lets him up. No sooner does he let him up than the guy starts at him again, <laughs> and the battle goes on and on. And finally he realizes it's the horse that this fellow was riding, which is his own horse, Gawain's horse, which had been stolen from him earlier, and uh, he gets all of that. Now there's a custom in this place, and then leave with the boatman, the ferryman, who's going to take it to the other side, receives the horse of the, uh, the uh, conquered man. And it happens to be Gawain's horse. So the boatman comes and says, I want that horse. So he says, no, the horse you get is this one on the ground here. And, um, or you can have the man. I'll give the man to you. <laughs> so uh, the boatman says, all right, I'll take the man. And uh, they get aboard the boat. He says, you bring him to my house. So they get aboard the boat. The boatman takes him over. This is the ferryman of the myth, crossing to the land of beyond the shore, uh, the land of the dead. That's where the women are. This is the castle of the king of death who has understanding all these people. Well, I'm not going to go on with this uh, in all detail, but the great trial that faces Gawain next 
was the style known as that of the perilous bed. These are very strange pieces of furniture. Uh, there's all kinds of warnings about it, and the boatman says, you've already gained all the praise you need in the world for having overthrown Grover and I should. He says, why don't you go home and forget this thing about the, the, the perilous bed? Uh, no one has ever survived this. But Louis says, this is part of my job, and uh, I'm going to do it. So he's told, now be careful. Here's a good heavy shield for you, and when you think it's all over, the thing has just begun. He goes in full armor then into this room, and the floor is so slippery you can hardly stand on it, and in the middle of the floor is a bed on wheels. And uh, every time you approach it, the bed goes dashing away. And uh, Heinrich Schimmer, writing about this, says, it's like a toy bride. The, uh, uh, the knight finally, in full armor, with, with shield and everything, gives a great leap and lands in the middle of the bed, and it starts bucking this way, that way, and the other way, knocking the house down and making all kinds of uh, racket, and the knight, and again, Simmer says, this is the problem of the male encountering the female psyche, uh, which is <laughs> absolutely intractable and unintelligible. Uh, and the great trial is patience to endure it. And uh, when patience has been rendered, then the sweetest results. So um, he's being uh, tenderized here. <laughs> in comes next. Uh, well, as when the bed finally is quiet, he thinks, ah, it's all over. Uh, but he, he remembers, he keeps the shield open. And then from the walls come 500 bolts, bang, 500 arrows, smash. In comes a great lion, and the lion pounces at him, and the lion's foot hits the shield, and he takes his sword and cuts the lion's leg off. So now he has this lion's foot on his shield, this lion lifting around, and there's blood spilling all over the place. So both of them are falling around all over. And finally, with the final leap of the lion, he happens to run into Gawain's sword, and uh, the lion dies with Gawain out on his back. And it's time. And two little girls look in. And hit their knife, but he looks kind of dead. So they come in, and from his gambit, they take a little bit of fur and hold it. It's just a little bit of breath. So they, they revive him in a nice, sweet way. And uh, when he does come to, he says, uh, Oh, please pardon the condition you found me in. I hope you won't mention it to anyone. So uh, he now becomes the lord of the castle, but he's in terrible state. Uh, among the people enchanted are his sisters and his mother and his grandmother and all this country. And uh, he's been repaired. They are, are lovely to him. The 400 queens are uh, taking care of him and he's healing and all. And he looks at them one at a time, and all he thinks about is that woman, that Bogaloo, who is his lady, and his heart is in such pain, aching for her, that none of these others matter. He is now fixed just on that one. And when he is not healed, but made uh, viable, so that he can get up, he goes up into a tower in this castle. And this is a wonderful tower that has been transported from the Orient with a mirror in it that reflects everything that's going on in the world. This is the comic mirror of the old Buddhist tradition. And uh, in this mirror, he sees a woman coming along with a knight. And who is it? It's this woman, Rosalind, with another knight. He hasn't waited for him even to get well. He now has to go out and defend the castle. And he does so. He overthrows the knight, wounds and all. And uh, when he has done this, he approaches this lady. He has uh, done these great deeds for her. And she says, you think you're pretty smart with that lion's uh, paw hanging on your shield. Certainly pretty interesting, isn't it? And she says, I have another adventure for you. And uh, he's beginning to get a little tired of this thing. But he has committed it. 
And the next adventure is one that is quite exciting because it uh, links up with the Fraser's Golden Bough. I don't know whether you remember the whole problem of Fraser's Golden Bough, but there's a priest of a tree. He was uh, he received that job by killing the priest before him. But before killing the priest, he had to pluck the bough of the tree that he was guarding. The tree is his bough. So he says, well, there's a, uh, a grove down the way, and uh, there's a tree there, and I want a wreath from that tree. And to get to it, you have to jump over a great uh, torrent. Well, of course, he falls into the river, and all this kind of thing gets his horse down, plucks the branch from the tree, and along comes the guardian of the tree, this great king with his garments trailing on the ground. And he said, uh, so he's plucked the branch from the tree, but unfortunately, I have never fought only one man at a time. So he said, uh, I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. He wants him to recommend him to Gawain's own sister. He doesn't know who Gawain is. He learns that Gawain is a battle of the range, and they're going to come back so far. Uh, this thing goes on with Gawain. Uh, he comes back to the woman with the wreath, and here's the finale with her. He says, here's your wreath. You can have it. And uh, she's weeping and tells him this terrible story of how her beloved was killed by this man and uh, how she has had one night after another in her service. She could never uh, give herself to anyone who was not worthy of the man who had been her spouse. And Gawain is worthy. And he says, well, it just seems to me that it's time for you to give yourself to me right here and now. He says, well, I don't warm up very well in iron arms. He says, uh, let's wait till we get home. And uh, they do go home and she becomes his, his consort. Now, uh, this uh, dedication to her, it, it actually releases all the women from the uh, spell under which they are bound. I've, I've given you a very, uh, this is an enormously developed thing in the text. Uh, he is undergoing in the way of service to women, the same ordeal that Parsifal uh, is undergoing in the way of the service to the father image. These are the two great myths that I spoke of yesterday of the divine marriage, the service to the female, and the atonement with the father, the service to the male principle, uh, being brought together here. And, uh, and, and, and so on. Well, finally, we have all of the knights and the ladies all coming together. And Parsifal arrives wearing a wreath. He is taken on the branch of the tree. And Parsifal and Gawain, not recognizing each other, come into combat. And when they recognize each other, they embrace. Um, now I'm coming to, uh, skipping a lot to the, to the final scene. We've got to get fair for this. The, uh, the black and white boy in on this thing. Parsifal has been told in the course of the story that he has such a brother, a half brother in India. He's riding forth on, oh, I might say that uh, when Gawain uh, and the lady are to be married, there's a great festival of marriage, and uh, everybody is making love all over the place, and Parsifal thinks of Hunter Moore. And, uh, with all these beautiful women and all these wonderful things to attract him, all he thinks of is Tanguiramor. And uh, her, in his mind, is what leads him away from, these, uh, from this entertainment. This is the scene that Wagner devotes his second act to, where uh, Parsifal comes into the Garden of Delight. And, but he refuses the women simply because he is ascetic in his mind, not because he's dedicated to another woman. It is this dedication to Conguirmore, to his wife, that releases Parsifal from the temptation around him of um, disloyalty to his love. Not disloyalty to God or asceticism uh, or anything like that. It's just one point of his love. So he leaves them and is riding out on the plains, and there comes toward him a heathen knight. Well, this heathen knight is gloriously arrayed in garments and in, uh, weapons and armor that have been uh, fashioned by uh, demons and all kinds of miraculous people in the east. 
these two men, and he has a wonderful uh, line here, he says, they say that when the baby lion is born, it is born dead, and what wakes him to life is the roar of his father. These two sons were born of battle roar, and as soon as they saw each other, without even asking who's that, they just rode at each other, and each was so angry that uh, the other one had survived his blow that they went at each other with terrific battle further. And Balsam says, one could say, if one wished, that two men were fighting here, but they were actually one. They were of one father and doing each other in loyalty much harm. This is a very important point. The idea that all pairs of opposites, we've had the male-female pair of opposites being one in the Galen, we have the uh, two combatants being one in the Parthenon. The two boys are sons of the same father. Well, the crisis comes when Parthenon's uh, sword breaks over the other man's head. The sword breaks, and the heathen uh, says, well, you don't have a sword now, and I'll gain no honor from fighting you. But as they were fighting, uh, each was speaking of his lady. Well, the heathen had no interest. He was a uh, uh, polytheist, and a uh, uh, polyandrist, no, a river. Uh, that, and uh, he would name the different uh, ladies and he gained power every time he'd name one of these. And the uh, Potiphar uh, had only one to name, and she came across, you might say, the uh, miles and miles, and it was she who stayed him in his battle and gave him his power. So as they're sitting down, it comes out in the talk that this is the brother. Uh, he says, let's move our helmets and, and see who we are. And Potiphar says, uh, well, I don't know about this. Uh, am I to do this out of fear? The other two saw the way. And uh, the apostle said, Oh, maybe you are my brother. I've heard of my brother. Uh, that he has skin that is black and white. And the other said, I'm mm -hmm. And so there's this embrace. And the two are one. And Volcom uh, uh, has a great passage here about the two being one and the opposite one. And, the, and what he's uh, doing is comparing Gamoret with the Hebrew tradition. Uh, Pontifal with the Christian and uh, uh, Theophis with the Muslim, these three aspects of one tradition. And then they come back to the castle, and the grail messenger, that horrendous woman, appears again, and here she gives praise to Pontifal through his loyalty, his, uh, his uh, resolute life, he has made himself the uh, grail king. That is to say, he has gained the grail even against the law of the grail, which is that the grail cannot be regained by one who has lost it. And so when Trevor Chet comes back into the story and uh, uh, learns that Rothschild has become the grail king, he says, through your human resoluteness, you have performed a miracle. You have changed the Trinity in its laws. You have actually forced God to change his laws. And here again is this principle of the divine being a function of the human courage, the resolute and now to the finale, the uh, woman messenger says, but you are not the prince of the grail castle, and bring a male companion with you. And he brings Pharisee, the Mohammedan. No Christian can get to the grail castle, except the one who through integrity of character has earned it. And now Pharisee, the Mohammedan, is coming too. Well, he's a very amusing man. He's a great one with the ladies. He's even now going to aim in this, and the ladies are very, very much interested in him. And Volkan uh, says, I think probably because of his interesting complexion. <laughs> uh, when they come to the grail, the grail uh, procession takes place, 
and the girl is brought in, and all Fairfield can see is this beautiful girl carrying the grail. He falls completely in love with her, and the stranger becomes uh, noticeable that he has not seen the grail. Mm -hmm. He can't see the grail. So word comes from old Cicerelle, the old, old super grail king in the back room who's dying, uh, who's living on for hundreds of years, that the reason he can't see the grail is that he has not been baptized. <laughs> now I thought at this point, don't tell me that Brokaw's going to crack up and give us the baptism. Well, they uh, bring in uh, the baptismal font, and with it an old priest, a priest who has converted many demons. <coughs> and he begins uh, teaching Pharisees the doctrine of the Trinity. And Pharisees doesn't get it at all. And Pharisees says, is that her God you're telling me about? And they said, yes, that's her God. He said, can I marry her if I believe in that God? Yes, if you'll have it, you can marry her. Well, he says, that's my God. He says, I renounce all the other gods I ever knew. If that's her God, she's mine. So he accepts baptism. It's a kind of parody of the conversion of the heathen. But the baptism is itself a very strange thing. The bowl is empty. And they tip the baptismal font toward the grail, the grail stone, and it fills with water. This is alchemical water. This is the water of the grail. So it's a grail baptism. It's not a Catholic baptism. The forms resemble those of the church, but the, the secret power is something else entirely. And when he is baptized, then, he submits to this, so that he can get uh, married to this beautiful girl, a very interesting thing. He sees the stone, and on it there is written a statement. And I offer this as the most amazing <coughs> statement for the date 1210. And I ask anyone here who knows about the history of uh, international affairs to duplicate it. On it, now he's a grail knight. On it it says, if any knight of the Grail Company, by the grace of God, should become ruler of an alien people, and he is the king of an alien people, let him not speak of his lineage or his name, nor let this be talked about, and let him see to it that the people gain their rights. This is the first statement I think anywhere in the traditions of uh, international law of the notion of bringing people to what are regarded as their rights, their political rights, through a colonial rule, you might say. It is a kind of foreview of the Western uh, concept of the United World, which underlies the chain of, um, of uh, Balkan, bringing of these religions together. So he marries the girl, and they go off, and he's king of India, and the grail king himself, you might say, in the foreign land, and their son, their child, is Prester John, the, the great uh, medieval uh, monarch of the medieval uh, uh, oriental legends. Now, uh, the next thing is that before becoming Grail King, uh, Pontypal encounters Conjuramor. She also, <coughs> his wife, has been invited to the Grail Castle. Let's say the whole family comes in on this, and he has two little boys. One of them is Lohengrin, and another is, uh, is another little child. And uh, these children come to the Grail Castle too. And what you have is a whole family situation here that has come from man living on earth with integrity and resolution uh, in his uh, earthly career. A man of uh, horrendous uh, deeds in the beginning, displaying only arrogance and uh, individual uh, uh, concern for himself, and yet this uh, great uh, redemption of the world. Uh,
Now, what I want to speak about uh, in connection with all this is the amor, love motif. This is love on his part, for conguer mores, and as we've seen, it is a very non-sensuous love. In uh, Gawain's love, we have a strongly sensuous love. But both of these are the uh, love of amor, in contrast to uh, eros or adapte. It is a love of personal dedication and service to a living woman or a living man in the way of life on earth with no overtones of heavenliness anywhere at all. I think this is the first work, the first serious work of what I'm thinking of now as the typical Occidental tradition. One, it is secular. Two, it is individualistic. Three, it is rendered in poetry and art that does not pretend to be religious. The whole religious mood is out. All the religion serves here in its uh, official manner is social function. Uh, the, the real dynamic and dynamism of the uh, tradition of the West comes down to the secular power in secular life. And it seems to be rather unfortunate that in our universities and in our uh, general thinking of these things, we tended to separate literature from uh, religion. And as a result of this, people think that the Western religion is somehow represented in our churches. It is not. There is drag. They have uh, remained way behind. Now they're trying to catch up. We'll see we're 500 years late, and let's have an ecumenical movement. But the, the real thing they've got to do is recognize that they lost the, the fashion. It's passed, it passed on to the secular world. And there's actually a whole tradition, a whole secular tradition of spirituality in our uh, Western world that doesn't pretend to be spiritual at all. It is uh, earthly. And uh, these poets are the characters. And what I want to talk about tomorrow is the vehicle of this. Not only in life, what I've been talking about today is the mode of life, the outer directed life that we exist. The inner life is that not of religious mood, but of art. And I want to, to bring this point forward. The, the traditional <coughs> notion of art as uh, something against the realm of the spirit is here refuted by everything you read uh, concerning aesthetics. The posture, the point of view, the uh, spiritual stance of the artist, <laughs> I mean the, the serious artist, is exactly equivalent to that of the Buddha under the bow tree. Exactly the same terms are used to describe the two experiences of aesthetic arrest and uh, spiritual illumination. But in this uh, legend of the outward directed man, we have no overtones of inward discipline. It's outward discipline. The courage of Parsifal, the courage of Gawain, is utterly selfless. This amounts to a, a spiritual stance. Not taking themselves. The combats are, are always described as though they were actual spiritual um, <laughs> and no, And on with himself a night he knew what a battle courage. Uh, requires and what the great of uh, noble aristocratic battle involves, where you honor the man uh, against you and regard him as your equal. For about ten minutes, and then I'd like questions on this whole thing, and uh, we can develop some of the implications of these images. I wanted simply to give you the type of imagery that comes up in these stories, this echoing of the religious images that we know in other myths, and I'd like uh, from your questions to develop these.
As Professor Campbell begins this lecture, he remarks that the Grail adventure simply comes upon Parsifal, that Parsifal encounters it as he's going about his other adventures. And the aim of this Grail adventure is to heal the suffering king, Amfortus, by asking a simple question. What ails you? Parsifal fails to do this when he first encounters Amfortus. And he fails even though he doesn't realize that he's already involved in this quest. This is a good time to talk a little bit about failure. Failure is, I think, more inextricably linked to heroism than success. Failure tends to stick with us longer. In many ways, it's more consequential than success. Failure may upend or even destroy one's life, while success is more generally seen as the achievement of a planned, well-executed goal. But Sophocles once cautioned that one must wait until the evening to see how splendid the day has been. In other words, you can't judge the value or relative success of a life prior to its completion. And failure is a necessary part of life. Failure is an experience we all will inevitably have. In fact, the only surprising thing about failure is its breathtakingly innovative variation. Nevertheless, one is left with a sense that in American life, failure, or its acknowledgement, is somehow shameful or improper. But in truth, failure is simply a negotiation with our human, all-too-human limitations. It is the inequalis magister vitae, life's unequal teacher. And for that reason, it is, I believe, a nearly ubiquitous presence in myth. Every success is itself a form of failure, writes Joyce Carol Oates in a marvelous essay called Notes on Failure. Her point is that there is always a compromise between what is desired and what we're able to attain. Oates writes, After all, there is the example of William Faulkner, who considered himself a failed poet. Henry James returning to prose fiction after the conspicuous failure of his playwriting career. Ring Lardner writing his impeccable American prose because he despaired of writing sentimental popular songs. Hans Christian Andersen perfecting his fairy tales since he was clearly a failure in other genres, poetry, playwriting, life. One has only to glance at chamber music to see why James Joyce specialized in prose. Unquote. Initial failure is a necessary feature of the Grail quest. And that's why the Grail hero is inevitably a callow, naive, inexperienced youth, a beginner in over his head. Failure by one who is inexperienced, untried, or naive is not a moral nor ethical failure. It's merely a personal failure, and personal failures can be remediated. Because beginners often fail, they're able to remain open to constant questioning, improvisation, learning, and reinvention, qualities that are indispensable when dealing with phenomena that can never be fully known or adequately represented by human beings. Uh, in the book I mentioned in my introduction to this lecture, The Romance of the Grail, Professor Campbell puts it this way. 
The goal of the Grail hero is to heal that wound, but he is to do so without knowing how he is to do so. He is to be a perfect innocent, not to know the rules of the quest, and he is to ask spontaneously, what is the matter? The quest begins in earnest only after Parsifal failed in his first unintentional visit to the Grail Castle, and afterwards commits to returning to it in order to fulfill, as the great Grail scholar Jesse Weston put it, the conditions which shall qualify him to obtain a full knowledge of the marvels he has beheld. Epistemological narcissism, um, unreflected certainty, and dogma snuffs out innocence and provokes the Grail Castle to withdraw from the world and disappear even farther into the metaphysical mists. Fully immersed in the initiatory situation, the innocent quester is progressively introduced to suffering, his own as well as that of others. Arguably, suffering is among the most important symbols in the Grail romances for the simple reason that it invites or inspires those who witness it to compassion. Even though the Arthurian romances and mythology in general are not very prescriptive when it comes to disease and physical suffering, they do make clear, from Homer's Odysseus to Aeschylus's Irenes, the importance of responding to another's suffering with compassion and empathy. Myth also employs suffering in such a way that we might learn to have more compassion for ourselves as well by learning to see through our physical suffering to the spiritual malaise that afflicts us. It seems to be the case that when the soul suffers, the body cries out. And what it cries out for is compassion and understanding. The Grail King suffers from a parmida quis, and his suffering is directly related to the wasting away of all that he oversees. This phrase, parmida quis, which literally means among the thighs, is a euphemism for a wound to the genitals, and it is not uncommon as a literary image. This, is, this confusion or conflation with uh, the thighs and genitalia has its roots in a belief shared by many cultures in antiquity that semen was produced several places in the body, including the marrow of the thigh bone. That and the thigh's proximity to the testicles resulted in a close association between thighs and male genitalia. It is, however, crucial to remember that there are always two orders or levels to consider when reading myth. The lower order deals with the more literal aspects of the material existence, like the creative principles of fertility and generation, choice and action, and physical birth and death. The higher order deals with the mysteries of spiritual renewal and revivification, spiritual death and rebirth. A wound to the genitalia is, from this perspective, very different from the cringe-inducing image of a physical wound. For example, both Odysseus and Captain Ahab suffer from the parmelequis. Odysseus has a scar on his thigh from being gored by a boar when he was a boy, and later, during his long-awaited return to Ithaca, it revealed his true identity. Odysseus's scarred-over wound 
symbolically constellates his odyssey of defenselessness, confusion, and destruction. The scar on his juvenile thigh foretold of his 20-year disappearance, the lonely confinement of his wife, and the self-doubting son who was deprived of a father's instruction. And Ahab didn't just lose his leg to Moby Dick, Ishmael tells us. In chapter 106, he says, For it had not been very long prior to the Pequod's sailing from Nantucket that he had been found in one night, lying prone upon the ground and insensible. By some unknown and seemingly inexplicable, unimaginable casualty, his ivory limb having been so violently displaced that it had stake-wise smitten and all but pierced his groin. In Moby Dick, Ahab's wound is tied to the scarcity of whale sightings, the frequent tide-overs, the onboard mishaps, the emotional and physical abandonment of his young wife and their infant child, his crew, and ultimately it reflects the emptiness of his own heart. In myth, a physical wound is a symbol of spiritual suffering. And this type of wound, particularly, this wound to the generative principle, arises from an imbalanced life. It is a wound of lust rather than love, as Campbell would say. Lust is impersonal. It's a purely biological impulse, and the object of it may be anyone at all. The love of the grail questers was born of the eyes and the heart. It is selective, discriminative. It's commensurate with the noble heart, the gentle heart, the heart capable of love. Professor Campbell tells us that the name of the wounded king is Amfortus, which is derived from an old French word, Amfortes, that means infirmity. Since he bore the name from birth, it seems that bearing the wound was to be his destiny. And of course, that destiny was fulfilled when a Saracen knight's spear pierced through his genitals. Compassion is what heals such a wound. Not diagnosis, not prescriptions for medications, nor surgery. The suffering is relieved by asking, in all sincere innocence, a question, the answer to which cannot be known by the questioner. Uncle, what ails thee? This healing question is the therapeutic move the healing application of compassion. You tell me what is wrong because I can't know. And when you tell me, I will stand in that suffering with you until you discover that you can bear it. Campbell says, Consider what's happening here. He has become the Grail King without inheriting the wound. That is to say, it's possible to be in that position intact and entire. This is a very optimistic work about the powers of man. Remember that early on Parsifal renounced God and the Christian faith, and the healing compassion he demonstrates is the compassion of a deeply humane, heartfelt love for other human beings. In Romance of the Grail, Campbell writes, And what does Trevisant say when he hears the news that Parsifal has achieved the Grail Castle? He says, This is a miracle that you have worked. Through your own will, you have caused the Trinity to change its mind, to change its rules. Just as through hate you evoke God's hate, through love you evoke God's love. 
He's saying that through your own integrity, you evoke your destiny, which is a destiny that never existed before. This kind of genuine love is the essence of the Christian myth, is it not? What changes the Trinitarian mind is the recognition of itself in Parsifal's compassionate, loving nature, a nature that compels him to ask the healing question. Joseph Campbell teaches that it's through Parsifal's integrity and love that he finally becomes the Grail King and heals Amfortas and the land. What better way to describe compassion than integrity and love? It is compassion alone that unlocks the door to healing and to bliss. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I can never adequately convey how privileged I feel and how grateful I am to you, the listener, to be able to bring you these lectures each month. The Joseph Campbell Foundation publication, The Romance of the Grail, The Magic and Mystery of Arthurian Myth, edited by Evans Lansing Smith, is available, along with the companion skeleton key study guide that Dr. Smith created, which you can find at the JCF bookstore at jcf-shop.org. Dr. Smith was featured on the Skeleton Key Study Guide webinar, and if you didn't have the chance to see the live broadcast yesterday, please go to YouTube and watch it at youtube.com slash at Joseph Campbell Foundation slash videos. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be back next week with another Joseph Campbell lecture on Pathways with Joseph Campbell. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network. It is produced by Tyler Lapkin. Executive producer, John Booker. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Charles Mallet. All music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.